and welcome to Conversations on Climate. My name is Chris Caldwell and this series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. We sit down with the experts who are trying to solve the biggest challenge of our time before time runs out. today from the London Business School. We're inside a lecture hall where we've just had a great conversation with Professor Jean-Pierre Benoit, Chair of the Economics Department here, Professor of Economics and one of the world's leading experts in the field of game theory. We covered a lot of grants, starting from where Professor Benoit's interest in game theory came from, um, how the whole field of economics has developed over the 30-odd years he's been studying it, including where behavioural economics fits the matrix of economic thinking. And we then went into more detailed questions of uh, rational polarisation, uh, which is the idea that two people can be presented with the same information but come up with entirely different viewpoints on it and both be right. It was a remarkable conversation with a remarkable individual and I really do hope that you enjoy it. He has a natural charisma and a gift for storytelling. Professor Benoit, thank you so much for taking the time to come and speak to us. It's a great honour and a great privilege. Thank you for inviting me. So, um, you've got a great passion for maths. You've got a great passion for trying to understand um, human behaviour through maths. Uh, could you explain how you, how you got into you know, economics and how your, your passion for game theory, where, it's, uh, where it originated from? Well, when you speak of a passion for, for maths, yeah, I, th- I think I have a passion for logical thinking, let me put it that way and careful thinking. And, of course, economics has, you know, vast application to all kinds of uh, problems and solutions, and for society is a very important subject. Uh, but what I uh, appreciated in economics, at least the kind of ma- economics that I do, is that a mathematical approach. But by mathematical approach, again, I would emphasize not so much fancy mathematics, but just a very careful, carefully laid out reasoning, a very logical step-by-step where you can go and say, ah, that's what I assumed. Was that a good assumption? Was that not a good assumption? This is what seems to follow. Does it really follow? Does it not follow? You know, so that's the kind of thinking that that I like, very precise thinking, let's say. Where did that kind of passion come from? What what really kind of got you into game theory originally, which is the area of economics you're best known for? Yeah, so game theory... And, you know, there's something called decision theory, which looks at how people take decisions, if you like. And then game theory is, to some extent, uh, interpersonal decision theory, okay, or interdependent decision theory, decisions uh, when lots of people are taking decisions, you know. And if you think about it, uh, I might say, like, everything is game theory, (laughs) you know. That might be a bit of an exaggeration, uh, but nonetheless, it's true that there's just a range of phenomena that you can analyze through that lens, even if you don't think of it at first, you know. So I could look at auctions, might be a very obvious one, how you auction, but I've also looked at immigration policy, you know, and the implications of immigration policy. So it's just a, a very useful systematic lens for, for analyzing a range of phenomena, a blue wall of silence, you know, so there's just a whole range now, you're uh, chair of the economics team here. Yeah. Um, what changes have you seen in the kind of the field of economics? Like, been at London Business School for 16 years as well. Um, what changes have you seen in the, the field of, of economics over that time? I, like, I the obvious example would be the, the growing evolution and importance of behavioral economics, economic thinking, and in the way that economics presented in the, the, the press. Yeah, so uh, I think you've hit on a good one. Actually, when I started studying, maybe game theory was the hot topic as well, you know. So, uh, and now changes we've seen in behavioral economics. Let me come back to that in a second. And maybe a change among the students is a greater interest in social issues and uh, issues such as discrimination, climate change, you know, very pressing topics. So we're putting those more and more into the curriculum. You know, uh, because not only does it interest students, but of course it's just interesting <laughs> or important that, that people analyze that. Behavioral economics has made uh, a big impact, you know, maybe not completely uncontroversial impact, but it's certainly shifted. And, you know, just loosely speaking, we can see, we could say that's 
introducing more uh, nuanced view of a human being, let's say, than very rational self-interest and looking at that more carefully. But, you know, some of my work, uh, you mentioned, looks at phenomena and challenges interpretation. So some of it looks at supposedly behavioral phenomena and questions whether that's really what's going on. Yeah, the uh, fundamental premise of uh, economics is that people are in some way rational. (laughs) They somehow act in their best interest. Um, I'm not sure that's always entirely true. Yeah, it's certainly not always entirely true, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and behavioral economics has has pushed that a lot. Uh, At the same time, what we might call traditional economics didn't view it as entirely true. The question was really, is it true enough? You know, as a a good starting point for analyzing behavior. So should I start from that premise, see how far that that takes me, you know? So I think even before behavioral economics, you know, many economists, certainly myself, wouldn't, like, try to push too hard. Everyone's rational, rational, just because that's the model I just gave you. It's just like, that's a good starting point. Let's look at uh, deviations. But, you know, behavioral economics has emphasized more that, well, maybe you should consider the deviations a bit more seriously. And I think that's a good point. Do you think that we're living in a less rational time than before? Or is like, are our, 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 our meme coins just tulips from the, from, from the good old days? There seems to be a perception in the press that, that we've, we've gone off the edge of a cliff and everybody's, everybody's lost their minds and people are doing things which are completely contrary to, to their own interests. Do you think that's true or is it just a a product of media. So it would be hard to say that people are more irrational than they used to be. I, I, you know, I doubt that's true. I haven't really studied it. Uh, and that question in that form. It's, see, to answer that question, I first have to understand what do I mean for someone to be rational? What do I mean for them to be irrational? Excellent. Okay. What's the evidence that I would look at? You know, when you say tulips, and I guess you're thinking about like, you know, tulip peaks, auctions and stuff. So is that rational or is it irrational? Okay. And it certainly has a degree of both in it. There's a lot of phenomena that look irrational aren't necessarily irrational. So uh, from that point of view, I I would just say, let's, let's step back. Part of what, you know, of course, when you're in the time, you know, things look crazier than if you take a big perspective, you know. But um, so part of my work, and again, it's not, it comes from a rational tradition. It's not that I want to push, push, push rational. But part of it does look at phenomena which are apparently irrational and questions that. So if I can, if I can give you an example, uh, there's something called the better than average effect. Maybe you've heard about that, right? So that's, I bring people into a room and I say, do you think you're a safer driver than most people? let's say, less likely to cause an accident. And 80% of the people say yes. So most people think they're better drivers than most people. And there's a lot of studies like this. They don't all show that. Some show that, but there are a lot of studies like that. It's a so-called better-than-average effect. And people say that, okay, that proves people are irrational. They're overconfident. But then I have a paper with my co-author, Juan Dubra, that says, well, let's be a little bit more careful. Okay. So if you want to say that shows people are rational, that they're overconfident, first I have to define exactly what I mean by overconfident. Then I have to define exactly what I mean when I say I think I'm a better driver. I'm sure I'm a better driver. I'm 70%. So exactly. Okay. And if you define all those terms very carefully, you'll see that the fact that 80% of the people say I think I'm a safer driver than the average doesn't mean they're overconfident. Okay. They could be perfectly rational. So that better-than-average effect, you know, and it's maybe surprising, okay, but it's perfectly consistent with everybody being rational, nobody being overconfident. By rational, I mean using all the information at hand in, like, the mathematically correct way, even being, like, too rational. Okay? So there are a lot of phenomena like that which people, and that's, like, quoted constantly as proof that people are overconfident, but it just doesn't show it. It really doesn't show anything at all. Hmm. Just for my own curiosity, is there a difference in between uh, male and female in that question? I don't think I know a single man who would say they're a bad driver. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you better ask, you know. So there, there are sometimes, depends on the question and what you're doing, you, you can see gender differences, you know. All right, well, that uh, kind of brings us neatly on to um, rational polarization, uh, which is another big, big topic uh, for discussion today. Um, you wrote an article a few years back on the, the, the nightmare that it is of having the climate uh, denier coming across for Christmas dinner. 
Um, could you explain um, climate scepticism in the frame of rational polarization? Yeah. So, uh, so what do I mean by rational polarization? Again, I mean, well, it could it be that we're disagreeing more and more without it being the case, well, that just one of us is stupid and the other one is smart, you know, or rational. Now, first of all, if we bring up climate change, even though there is disagreement, I would point out that if I compare to 20, 30 years ago, there's a lot less disagreement, okay? And we sometimes forget that, you know, and as you go into the path. So we're actually moving to convergence on the issue of, of climate change, you know, much more than the opposite. But let me just take that, okay? So, in fact, I just saw an article, I think it was in the BBC website, talking about uh, oil companies hiring PR agencies and funding scientists to spread climate disinformation, let's say, okay? And to cast doubt on whether humans are responsible for warming and to exaggerate uh, the degree to which there's disagreement, okay? And, and, you know, and part of the point of the article is that could explain why we are where we are, so many people disagreeing, okay? Whereas if they hadn't done that, there would be even more agreement than there is, okay? So now, if I say that to you and, and you're a believer in climate change, and you say, yeah, okay, that all makes sense. I understand that, you know? Now I might speak to a skeptic who says, but you know what? All the, these people who disagree, it's because they don't like oil, okay? And they're actually captured by the renewable industry who's paying for a lot of the research, so there are a lot of vested interests on that side. Okay. So now, this is really just a symmetrical argument. Okay. So if the argument that people have paid scientists to have, you know, uh, criticize oil is a valid one, well, how about the, not to criticize, to defend oil, you know, criticize climate change is a valid one. Well, why isn't the other argument a valid one? Okay. So therefore, I have to, in that sense, step back and say, well, wait, wait a second. You know, on the face of it, it sounds like this argument is more, I've like, Agreed, right? My starting point was scientists can be bought <laughs> and PR can be bought, you see? So there I'll say, nah, maybe there's a rational polarization. We'll have to really start the discussion there. Who do we think can be bought? Why is this being bought more plausible than that, you see? So there's a different way of looking at it. But now I could be going into uh, showing my own personal views on this and the, the, the asymmetry of the, um, the asymmetry and organization and wealth on one side and the relative lack of organization or relative lack, lack of wealth on the other. Like the, the oil and gas industry for, for centuries, including like the, the petrochemical companies and the states, have been a very... Excuse the pun, well-oiled machine. They've been very, very good at it. And on the other side, you've had a, a lot of people who've been at heart very well-meaning, but not the industrial behemoth on the other side. There has been an asymmetry of, of, of weaponry. And it's improving, so things are, are more counterbalanced, more balanced, but... Over history, I think it's yeah, uh, so my own push, view. Is not let true. me push back for a second. And I'm not pushing back because I don't believe climate change is man made. I certainly do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I believe we're on the precipice of a disaster. <laughs> okay. But nonetheless, let me yeah, push back. Please. You know, and say, yes, you know, if I do a poll, I can see scientists in the United States tend to be more left wing than right wing. Okay. They're probably, you know, that's what the surveys tend to indicate. You know, they're probably not big fans of oil. Okay. So it probably doesn't take that much for them to have a distorted view, you know, and maybe even though there's a long history of oil, the renewables are just catching up, and actually some of them have a lot of money, you know, so maybe it's not as clear-cut as what you want. But the point I really want to make is, you see, now we're having a kind of discussion which, which sounds maybe more promising, you know, than just putting on a graph again about here's the time and here's this and this. Because now, I, now, now you might say, yeah, that might be true. And then if you tell me, well, they're more funded, I say, yeah, you got a point. They are well funded. Okay, that's hard to disagree with. And now we're going down, you see, now a different path and maybe a more promising path. But I, I, I don't know. But it's just changed the tenor of, of the discussion. And it's acknowledged that is not necessarily when I'm denying it, well, that I'm just an idiot who refuses to listen to anything. Because let's face it, I believe the science. But when I say I believe the science, it's not because I've done the science. It's really hard to do the science. <laughs> it's really because I believe the scientists. <laughs> so now you have to ask me, well, why do you believe the scientists? And which scientists do you believe? And why do you believe this outlier scientist? And so, again, you see it's a bit more complicated. 
Yeah, yeah, a deeply polarized world is not a very happy place. It's not, it's, that's not where you want to be. But no, another kind of good example of uh, rational polarization might be the current energy crisis, where where you've got like a big spike in in all of our gas bills, and you got one side of the argument saying, "Well, that's because you." green fools, we're not investing in the infrastructure that we need to be keeping our oil and gas networks going up. And you got the, the green guys going, yeah, you fools, why didn't you put more money into insulation and into more re- renewable energy? Both of them take the same single fact of being oil prices are high, uh, gas prices are high, and they come to completely different conclusions on it. Yeah, so uh, you're, you're basically telling me they're coming to different conclusions on what to do about it. Right. Should we invest in renewables or should we invest in fossil fuels? All right. So let, let's just be careful and step back a little bit. So when I speak of the, the polarization, I could mean polarization in our beliefs or understanding of the facts or a polarization in what I want to do about it. All right. So the example you've given me, I would say, is put more heavily on the, the what do I want to do about it. In fact, the, both groups might agree that in, if I'm an environmentalist, I would say, yeah, if you invested more in fossil fuel... I guess there'd be more fossil fuel. <laughs> and if I'm a fossil fuel person, I'd say, okay, yeah, I guess if we put five times more in renewables, there'd be more renewables. So I'm not sure they're really disagreeing on, on that basic fact. What they're disagreeing about is what's the better route to take. See, so that's already a different kind of disagreement. You know? So there, when I, want, when I speak of careful thought, and if I just speak of polarization, of course, you know, in the press could mean a lot of things. You know? And if I'm going to be an academic, then I'll have to like, exactly define what I meant by it and where it looks rational and where it doesn't look rational. But like, polarization on, on what we should do about it is different than on our beliefs about what's the underlying cause. And interestingly enough, your example, and it, you know, we'd have to flesh out exactly what you meant by the example, but... On the face of it, it's consistent with everyone agreeing completely <laughs> on the cause and this and even possible solutions and just disagreeing on which they, they prefer. You know? Now, what might be irrational is maybe the fossil fuel person will say renewables are just too far from, from being that. And the renewable person will say, no, you're, you're wrong on that. Right? And then if so, if they're like using confirmation bias and refusing to look at the data, that's what I might call the irrational part. Okay, so there's probably some of that in there, but a lot of it is just, no, you know what, I want to feed my family for the next 50 years, and maybe in 100 years there'll be another solution and some, something else is going on. For sure. And to try and kind of break through kind of um, this rational uh, polarization, you suggested that, uh, that novelty, like just new information that can't be looked at in the frame of your, your current biases and your current, your current thinking might be a, a way through it. Um, in the climate sphere, um, you know, there's a general call of, well, facts aren't working anymore. Like, we keep on coming up with facts, and facts and minds aren't changing because of new facts. How do you think novelty as a concept can kind of fit into that? Yeah, so when we say facts aren't working anymore, right? So, so part of the problem is I just keep giving you the same kind of facts, you know, look at the temperature, look at this, you know, and look how much, you know, people are driving cars in this. And then it's almost like, well, it didn't convince me before. Why do you think it's going to convince me now? Okay. And it convinced you. It didn't convince me again. I'm not using actually me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But nonetheless. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So if you just keep pushing the same fact, the same fact, the same fact, then why are you surprised? And you say, you idiot. I'm saying, you just repeated the same thing seven times in a different way and you're surprised? that I'm not convinced. So now what you might need to do is take a different angle. In fact, we had a little bit of it in our vested discussion uh, of a different angle. You know, so you could see somehow we both agree that uh, you might be able to buy off people. There's something called vested interest. Okay, so now maybe we should look at that because now you gave me a different angle. But yeah, but you say, you know, the scientists you think are making a lot of money by the renewals, they're actually not making a lot of money. Most of them have tenure and then a school, and, you know, the interest you see. So maybe that's going to uh, convince me more, you know. If I look at climate change, so one thing is that, you know, I plot the temperature, I plot uh, what that people are doing, and some skeptics will say, but I just don't believe that it's due to what humans are doing. That's just a small factor. I don't, I don't believe that, okay? So maybe an argument I could have is, oh, let's just look in general how much does the actions of mankind affect the environment, apart from climate, you know? And maybe we can say, you know, there's, a, there's been a huge effect on the whale population. I don't know, I'm just making something up, 
you know. And maybe if we get that angle, we could then first agree, is it plausible that humans would have an effect or not? And then take it that, that route. Okay, so not just the same kind of argument. It's, it's almost, it, when I phrase it that way, you see, it almost sounds silly to think the same kind of argument repeated over and over is going to result in a different it, it, it does, but there are there's, there is new information. Like for example, we hit like forty one degrees here in London. That's new. That's a record. That, but it's a record, so therefore it's new. Uh, but if you have a look at kind of one media outlet or another, like if, you, if, if say you were looking at if I was in the US and I, I asked Tucker Carlson on Fox News or I asked. Greta Thunberg or, or Al Gore, you end up with entirely different answers on this. It's a, it's a new data point. But if I was uh, like a, a good conservative, I'd, I'd go and um, see what Tucker Carlson said. If I was a, a good um, progressive, I'd see what uh, Al Gore says. And that would frame my belief system in and around it. How do you break through that circle? Yeah. <laughs> so first, I mean... You told me that's a new data, data point that's a record, right? So what if I told you, but you know what? Actually, in 1974, the old record was in 1974, where, I don't know, I just made that up, you know? <laughs> you know? And 41 is a new record, but actually it was 40 in 1974, and then the temperature went down, okay? So, again, you might, now you're probably going to hesitate because you haven't checked 1974, and even if what I've said is correct, you're probably not going to go, well... I changed my mind completely. That's all, fine. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So I'm saying it's all is more complex because actually the science is very. We, we we just toss this out, but the real, the correct data, you know, th- that we need to understand is very complex, you know, and that's where the, the trust comes in and understanding who I need to believe to, to some extent. Now, you're right. I go listen to Tucker Carlson, and then I just listen to. And, you know, and, and I don't mean to, I don't want to suggest that Tucker Carlson is actually giving me plausible things, you know, uh, he's not. Uh, but I then need to look at, at the hand hand, I don't want to suggest that everyone who goes to look at him is an idiot. They're not, you know. So they have other reasons for looking at him. So that, that, that's a problem. That's a problem, you know. So there's a problem on who I choose to believe and why I choose to believe them. I would say the, the bias, the confirmation bias, is when I just choose to believe people because I want to believe their conclusions, you know, because I like it. But then what might sound like confirmation bias but, but really isn't is, oh, when you say something that I already believe, I tend to think you're probably right, you know. That's not really confirmation bias because that is consistent with what, I'm, what, with what I'm thinking, you know, and it can be hard to disentangle Mm. The way I looked at that was in um, a a game theory type of frame where people are looking um, looking for their position because they're part of a group and there's benefits of being part of that group. If you can understand the position of the group, uh, you can be a better member, a better contributor, you can be a better conservative or a better progressive or whatever it might be. And uh, there's personal benefits to you and even if the facts aren't, and even if you might even know that the facts aren't, aren't, aren't really right, it doesn't matter because the benefits of the rational decision is what you get from being a part of the group. And almost irrelevant of whether the facts are really 100% correct or not. You, know, you, want, you understand there's a bias, but you lean into that bias because being part of this group is, is to your benefit. Yeah, I think that's that's a good analysis of some things that happen. You know, if I look at climate change, of course, if I care about my grandchildren, <laughs> you know, then I'll say there's a, a lot of costs if I'm wrong about climate change. There's a, there's a lot of costs. Not to you. <laughs> no, so that's a question. Yeah. So that's a question who, who I'm caring about, you yeah. know. But if we look at uh, COVID, there's a lot of costs not getting a vaccine. To me personally, <laughs> uh, the chance of dying is much, much greater. But you're right. There's a cost to being the only one in my group that has the vaccine and being ostracized from them, right? And so now it's it's more complicated. Why would that group believe that? You know, what are the other underlying things? Why am I going to view all those? And, you know, and then when I put in the word, is it rational? Is it irrational? Does it matter if it's rational? Or does it matter if it's irrational? You know, so those are all, maybe I just want to emphasize here, they're all more complicated than it might look like at first. 
I was uh, lucky enough to be um, at the Royal Geographic Society to hear your TEDx talk uh, in person. Great talk, great talk, and we'll include the, the link in the description for anyone else who wants to go and have a look at it. But could you explain what, like the first step, what is a rational accident? Yeah, so let's, let's just think of some accidents. Okay, so uh, the BP Gulf oil spill or the space shuttle exploding or um, rogue traders, which I might call an accident in the sense of broadly of just a wrong thing occurring okay? or a doctor is administrating the wrong medication. Know, so we can just think of all these things, Three Mile Islands, lots of things. Okay. And a typical analysis would say, okay, well, so, so what went wrong? So is it that the company is prioritizing profits over safety? Okay. Is it that the workers just don't care or they're lazy, you know, or they're distracted, you know, or something like that? Okay. Uh, let me fix the errors that were made, the errors that were being made. Okay. And that's what we might call a let me call it an irrational accident or just an accident. So what do I mean by irrational accident? I mean, no, let me, it, it is possible that actually the workers are doing everything right. Okay, and we'll come back to what I mean by that. And they actually care. It's not that they're lazy and that they care about the accident. Everything is right. But somehow when it's right, it's like individually it's the right thing for me to do. But when we all individually do the right thing, it's the wrong thing. Okay, if we all coordinated it, it would be the wrong thing. So let me just give an example. Let me not exactly an, an, uh, an accident, but maybe this has happened to you. You have a meeting, you know, at your company, and there are fifteen of you, and, and you're going to make a decision. Maybe hire someone. I don't know. And there's a twenty-page memo you're supposed to read. It's long. Okay. So you get there, you read it, you've read it, you're ready to prepare, and then people start to talk. And you know what? All the points you're going to make, four other people have made them already. Okay. And like, but why did I waste my time reading that memo? <laughs> I mean, I could have been better off not reading the memo. Now, actually, I said I could have been better off, but that's not what I mean. I don't mean that, like, I could have been out clubbing instead or watching TV or having dinner with my wife. Okay? Suppose now I'm a good worker. Okay? What I think is I could have done something better for the company. That's a better use of my time. You see? It's not like I'm making a mistake. It is, literally, it was a better use of my time not to read the, those memos. Okay? But the problem is when we all think that way, nobody reads the memo. Okay. And now we're going to say, well, wait a second. We were all trying to do the bad thing. There's in sense, some sense, and I'll come back to that again, nothing was done wrong. Okay. Now, if I look at accident reporting, okay, the shuttle, uh, chemical plants, and a lot of things, and you see careful an analyses, you'll often hear this phrase, it was an accident waiting to happen. And what does that mean, it was an accident waiting to happen? Well, there were all these procedures that should have been followed, and half of them weren't followed. And if I look at a, like a chemical plant, so chemical plants spews deadly chemicals. It's not because someone came in and flipped the wrong switch. No, they're not that stupid. They're like seven different safety things. You know, there's an alarm that should go off, and there's a heating blanket, and someone should be te- checking the temperature gauge, and this and this and this and this. There's a lot of things that need to go wrong. Okay, but then you look and you see, you know what? A lot of them weren't being followed. Okay, I look at the space shuttle. There's a very definite procedure safety that weren't being followed. Okay, and then I go, why not? Well, now we'll come back to the memo. And I said, yeah, you know what? They should all be followed. But actually, this one doesn't need to be followed if the others are being followed. Okay? And in the sense, there's a lot of redundancy built in there. But the redundancy itself, which makes it safer, makes me not really need to put in the effort. Uh, in the sense, again, for the company, that I could be doing something else to make the company safer than being the 14th person to check something that's been checked 13 times, okay? Like too many redundancies are working against us. That sense it's a rational accident. Now, if I, if I follow the reasoning I just gave you, I'd say, oh, I think everyone else is going to read the memo, so I won't read the memo. But everyone thinks that. So if I'm really rational, I should say, but wait a second, everyone thinks that. So maybe I should read the memo. But maybe everyone thinks that everyone reads it, so maybe I shouldn't read the memo. But maybe I should read the memo. Okay, so now it's actually more complicated. Now I'll need game theory, which you mentioned before. If I write it all out very careful, the game theory, I'll see, yes, you know what? The result could be we're all doing the right thing. We all care about safety. We all care about everything. And yet we're getting the accident. So that's what I'm calling the rational accident. For instance, you put in more redundancy than you should when you factor in that people are going to think, should I read the memo or not? And can you see any parallels with that uh, with climate change? Yeah, so I'll give you a parallel and a non-parallel. Okay, so 
part of what I said is it's kind of like a free, what's called a free writer problem, right? Why should I read the memo when you've read the memo? Okay. And if I look at climate change, one of the things that makes it very difficult is we know we all have to reduce. We all have to reduce. But actually, if everyone else reduces, then I don't really need to reduce. You know, even the United States, as big as it is, if all the other countries really went down and the United States went down just a little bit, maybe that would be good enough. You know, so that's like a free rider problem. What I'd like to do is do less and let you worry about it. Okay? There's the cost are being placed on everybody else, and I'm going to ignore that. Okay? And that really drives climate change a lot. That's a, a lot of the problem because we can have all the discussions, discussions, and in the end, I kind of want to walk away and say, you know, my oil well is fine. <laughs> you know, let somebody else take care of the problem, and then we're screwed when everyone thinks that way. It's not a, a, a change in the parallel is that part of the problem is I, I'm not really worried about you being hurt, just me being hurt. And that maybe aggravates it even more. Whereas in the rational accident, even if I am worried about you being hurt, that's not the problem. It's not that I'm not worried. I really don't want the chemical plant to explode. It's just there's that element of the free rider problem is that I should reduce it because someone else is doing it, but there isn't, on the climate change has that, and on top of that, well, do I really care what's happening to those countries? You know, sometimes people advocate for climate change and say, you know what, you better care, because if you're worried about immigrants now, what do you think is going to happen when the water goes up, you know, and half the planet is, is unlivable? Do you think that democracy is up to the task, or, that, or our current systems are up to the task of, of, of getting through this? It's, it is so much more in the interest of the, kind of the smaller nations, particularly the smaller island nations, that they desperately, desperately need this to happen. This change 100% needs to happen for these. And it's less of an issue for the massively wealthy countries who could be spending money on, on building dams and stopping sea levels rising around their particular cities. So one difficulty is, you know, and I said we're moving in the right direction, right? But one difficulty is the scientists tell us we're not kind of moving fast enough, you know, and, and that makes these kind of problems more urgent. It's like we don't really have 80 years to move in the right direction, you know. And we saw that problem with COVID a lot, you know. There are exponential growth. And you just look at what, oh, last week we were okay. <laughs> you know, we don't really need to do anything. Oh, we were just a little bit bad. A little bit bad and that last week means disaster this week. And super disaster next week, right? So to that extent, I... I really have to depend on the experts, so to speak. <laughs> and I really have to go with what they're saying. And if, if by democracy you mean just really count on people making an evaluation on their own and, you know, having a plebiscite on doing that, that's not really going to work, you know. But on, on the other hand, you know, the populations are moving more to let's do something about it. You know, so I, I don't know that a dictatorship's going to do a better job. Uh, but... It's the kind of situation where, yeah, we can't just wait 40 years for everybody to realize the problem. Then it's too late. So you seem to spend a lot of time thinking about the costs of uh, misplaced certainties. Uh, we live in a very uncertain time. Like, for, I, I think we live in a lot more uncertain time than we did even a, a year ago. And certainly before the pandemic, I think we're, we've, we've got an awful lot more uncertainties in, in our heads. I think everyone's a little bit more distracted than they were because stuff that's happening. And obviously looking forward, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty in climate change. You know, are we going to find this great panacea, this great solution to the problem? Um, we think things will be bad, but we don't really know how bad. How do we deal with you know, the uncertainty? Do we just embrace it? Do we just roll with it? So uncertainty is really tough. <laughs> uh, it's really tough to understand. Uh, to interpret correctly and to know what to do in the face of uncertainty and to uh, evaluate things, you know, and decisions, given that there was uncertainty before the decision, uncertainty after the decision, okay? And a lot of mistakes are, are made that way and a lot of wrong interpretations, okay? And maybe even sometimes professional statisticians misspeak, okay? And one thing I have in mind is before Trump was elected, okay, and he looked at the polls, you know, and they said Hillary Clinton would be elected. But actually what a careful person say, like she has an 80% chance of being elected, you know? And, uh, and I remember actually the day before the last poll, 
said like 70% chance, you know, and I went to the office and I went, folks, have you seen that? There's a 30% chance Trump will be elected. That's huge. <laughs> you know, and uh, when I say the statisticians made a mistake, what I mean is that after the election, a lot of them said, well, where did we go wrong? Where did we go wrong? But I say, but what do you mean went wrong? 20% is big. You know, if I say there's an 80% chance he's elected and she's not elected, I didn't go wrong. I didn't say 100. I didn't say 99.1. Okay. So they're kind of wrong in their saying they were wrong, at least if that, that was it. So that's one problem we have is we tend to interpret whatever the, is leaning towards like to certainty. You know, the weather forecaster says 20% chance of rain. Oh, it's not going to rain. That's not what they said. <laughs> you know, one out of five chance is a really big chance. Okay. So that's uh, one error that, that we make. Okay. And we're not certain how to then evaluate if the person was good or bad. And we go, well, last time you said there would be a problem and there wasn't. But no, I didn't say there would be a problem. I said there's a 60% chance or a 40% chance. That's a very uh, different statement. Okay. Another way we have a problem is when we have a small chance of a very bad outcome. Okay. So there I see if someone goes, oh, I don't know, you're exaggerating climate change. There's only a 20% chance. And I go, a 20% chance the planet will be destroyed? That's huge. <laughs> okay. You can't focus on the 20%. You have to focus on, on put that together. But we're not very good at doing that. You know, so that all makes it very, very difficult. And you say, it might happen, it might not, then you're really not sure what to do. And you really want someone to give you advice. This will happen, that won't happen. This is the right thing, sort of before the fact and after the fact, you know. And that's not going to be the case. Okay? And it makes all the decisions a lot worse okay? in, in lots of ways. Okay? So let me give another example. I don't know if you remember Hurricane Katrina. Of course. Right, so, you know, wiped out New Orleans, okay? And there was woefully inadequate preparation, okay? And this kind of motivation for one of my papers, you know? And they say, well, why? Why did the government not prepare? What does he say? So it's like a Category 5 hurricane. And if I look and I do the math, and if I look at a president's term, and I say, well, what was the chance a Category 5 hurricane would strike within that term? Something like even two terms, something like 5%, if I remember correctly. So that's really low. But it's a real disaster. It's not low meaning you shouldn't prepare. It's, mean, it's low meaning you should prepare. But it's low meaning that if I do prepare and I come up for election and say, well, don't worry, I spent a lot of money preparing for a hurricane. They go, hurricane? There was no hurricane. What kind of an idiot are you? Okay. And the opponent who comes says, don't worry about it. Who's looking right? The person who said, don't worry about it, or the person who said, worry about it, you know? And that makes our decision-making very bad. If I look at COVID and the pandemic, it's not that there were no warnings. There were tons of warnings. There are tons of warnings, okay? But the warning wasn't, well, in the next four years, this is a pandemic. It's stretched over time, and there's a long decision. And if there are two candidates running, and one says, we really got to prepare for the pandemic, and the other says, no, we don't. There's just don't listen to those guys. Who's going to look right? guy who said, no, we don't. No, we don't. Until we did. And we didn't prepare. You know? and, but that uncertainty uh, and the combination of how certain is it with how bad is it going to be leads to really bad decision making. <laughs> mm, yeah, which is unfortunately where our politics is at right now. <laughs> yeah. Nobody, nobody looks. Everyone promises everything. And delivers on very little. It's quite, it's, it's quite a disturbing time, actually, to be honest. Uh, it is. It is. And what's disturbing, too, is a lack of accountability, which is, if you speak about democracy, which we, we really need. We really need. You know? So whatever you think of Boris Johnson, let's say, what drives me crazy is when he says, well, I got all the big decisions right. I got all the big decisions right. But you sent sick people into care homes. Was that a right decision? You know, how can it be right unless those people don't count? I don't know. Explain to me, you know. So just what's worrying to me is you could just make that statement, you know. Better, I'd be happier if he said, I got most of the decisions right. That wasn't the right decision. Maybe it's not as bad as you think because if I look, I don't know. Give me some explanation for why you're, you're doing that. But if you can get away with just making that claim, and it's irrespective of what we think of him, you know, that's worrisome. 
You know, that's that gets more worrisome. You know, if I look again, Trump on COVID, if that doesn't impact you, those statements, then we're in big trouble because the one thing that democracy is supposed to do for us is at least hold the politicians accountable and say, "Okay, you didn't get that right. You know, that's not right. Let me find somebody else. In all these big issues that we're talking about, and be it, um, you know, climate change, be it, um, you know, democracy's issues and dealing with things, and but particularly about polarization, they're all very human issues. But you've lived in North and South America, you've lived in Africa, you've lived in Europe. Do you see uh, there being big cultural differences in the way people look at it, or are we all, we all human? Well, I think both are true, <laughs> you know, and, and it's interesting if I look at, like, behavioral economics, not necessarily behavioral, but if I look at what is the role that culture play, okay, and maybe 30 years ago, economists would ignore that completely, more or less, not completely, you know. Now there's a lot more work on the culture and history making a difference. But on the other hand, you know, uh, there might be still a, an inclination of a lot of economists, myself included, to say, well, before I go to the purely cultural route, let me step back and see uh, how much are the different prices in the country affecting something, how much are the actual different conditions, how much would you actually be behaving in the same way if the institutions were the same, you know. So there's a lot of commonality driving that, you know. At, you know, on the face of it, the first thing a game theory model would do is, like, abstract away from all those differences you know, and see how much I could explain just by using the same model, you know. And... And that would be my inclination, but I wouldn't push it too much in, in the sense that next step should be, okay, okay, let me take a step forward and say, well, you know what, the culture matters, you know, partly in what you were describing before. I have to live in a society with other people who, you know, have this way of doing things for whatever reason, you know, and it might be possible that if our society also had that way of doing things, we'd react, but we don't, okay, and that needs to be my starting point you know that's what i need to to move from how people are going to react to that so that certainly can't be ignored mm. um let's kind of go back a little bit um because we're talking about uh, you want to believe in experts yeah and because you need to believe in experts because you can't do all the study yourself which makes, makes perfect sense one really interesting part of your paper was talking about that the more body in you are so the more of an expert you are uh, the more likely you are to be to be polarized um and we have been relying on experts to be telling us stuff, but those experts are polarized people, or more likely well, to be polarized. So it's, it's not exactly that, but, but let me first take the first part of what you said, okay, which is that we want to believe in experts, yeah. okay, and that I said you should believe in experts. You know? And then we have, you know, a lot of people say, well, who cares about the experts? I don't believe in the experts, okay. Uh, and is that a good thing or a bad thing? Okay, so first of all, uh, we need the experts to be believable. <laughs> okay, so part of the problem, you know, when they say, "Well, don't why people? Why don't people believe in experts? Are they believing less?" And I say, "Well, part of the problem is the experts themselves." Okay. So the experts are they also they want to be uh, have a TED talk. You know, you mentioned I have a TED talk, but you know what? I hate TED talks, even though I have them. <laughs> I have one. <laughs> Okay, and what I hate about TED Talk is that you typically have some come in and they go, let me show you something and make a point. Boom, 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 boom. Like 20 minutes of all the data shows this. And it's incredible. And it doesn't all show that. It's not even close. Okay, it just makes a very compelling story. You know, and some of these are not experts. Some of them are experts. You know, there's like an incentive to try to sell my stuff. You know, and I don't sell my stuff by sort of getting on and say, well, maybe this is true, maybe that's true, and here's a footnote, and this is what I did, you know, so I, I, I have to push it, or I don't know if I have to, because I try not to, you know, but that's the problem. The experts, sometimes they don't deserve to be believed, okay? And then they're an expert, and then they come, like, there's an interview, and then you start to ask me about anything, and well, I got the mic, I might as well answer. But, you know, no, I'm not an expert on 17 different things, you know. I'm better off saying, in my opinion, no, you know. Let's shift to other interview where you go, I just have a regular guy off the street, and I'm going to get their opinion. You know, if you want to get my expert opinion, it should be on something that I'm an expert on. Okay? And I, I should give it 
in a believable way, okay? It's not just believable, but I mean, sometimes I get mad at the experts. You know, I see them, I say, no, you don't know that. You, you just can't make that statement, you know? So that's a problem. Now I say you have to believe the experts. In a sense, you have to, because you can't do it yourself, you know? I can look at a chart of the COVID and this, but I'm not an epidemiologist. You know, there's a lot I don't understand, you know? When I go to the doctor, the doctor says, well, what treatment do you want to follow? I'm like, you're the doctor, <laughs> you know, but it's not like you can, maybe you'll, you'll explain to me in half an hour, but you're distilling five years, 10 years of, of, of experience to half an hour. Glad you gave me your opinion, you know, you explained it to me, but ultimately I'm not the expert. And ultimately in some sense, that's why I say, I kind of have no choice. I, I have no choice to, for the climate for the climate. And that's why, you know, when you tell me we had a record data point, I almost push you, but do you really believe that that's important? If I give you another data point, you know, no, I really need the expert to tell me, no, it's not that data point. Or maybe it is that data point. I don't know. Maybe they'll tell me 41 is so incredible that it matters. I'm not an, I'm an expert. So we have to believe in, in, in some sense. Uh, nonetheless, I won't exactly go to my paper. They don't always agree. <laughs> Okay. And that can make a difficulty and that can get me to try to agree, you know, to go to the ones I agree with and I don't. But if we can see the shift, I think, in the climate change is there's been a big shift in the consensus among experts. You know, 30 years ago, there was a lot more disagreement than there is now. It doesn't mean you can't find one who, who doesn't. But the science, you know, the hard science tends to move <laughs> You know, they'll come on board, they'll come on board, and they might polarize in the short run. They'll look at the same evidence, they go, oh, that proves my point, that proves your point, you know. But with enough evidence, long enough, they tend to then move, move together, and I think that's what we're seeing uh, with climate. There's fewer and fewer scientists who are arguing against climate change. Yeah. Like, but that doesn't mean that it's necessarily filtered into kind of the general discourse. But there's still a lot of people who will be dismissing of experts. And again, we're back to the polarization side of things where people will be listening to somebody who's not a scientist. People will go and listen to Tucker Carlson say, not a scientist, has strong, strong opinions on these things, and they, 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 they take that on. Is there a way of kind of breaking that cycle of, of getting people looking towards non-experts, uh, looking towards people who are just kind of big voices? Yeah, you know, so part of the problem, is, as you've stated, that people say we don't believe the experts, but it's maybe they believe the wrong experts, experts, because Tucker Carlson can sound very convincing and sound like an expert, you know, and they say, start to quote people, and, you know, they'll, they'll say something which maybe, if, if you're watching it with your relative who disagrees, you won't be able to immediately counter it, you know. So it's funny when people say they don't believe an experts, and I think that's in your question, the bigger problem is they're believing in the wrong experts. You know, it's not just that they're going with their own experience, which that's one way not to believe experts, but they're just believing the wrong ones, partly because they want to, partly because they think there's a bias. So that's really the cycle that we have to, to break. And again, the, I, I really think the problem with climate change, COVID, are the, the ones where we don't have the, the time. I, I do think in a long run, climate change is moving in in that direction people have come on a lot more on board but there's still a a big resistance um but that's a question of restoring that trust you see sometimes that people say oh that comes to how can i write something that's more convincing you know how can i make like the next bestseller like gladwell or something you know, which uses the science, but doesn't really use it in a way that I would like, <laughs> you know, sometimes does, sometimes it's too imprecise, you know, and then it gets very hard if you're reading a summary of a paper, you know what, I, you know, I might tell my students, you know, you go read the paper, but it's really hard to read a paper, I can't really say it that seriously, because I understand to go read a paper and to really read it, <laughs> even if it's in your field, it's hard, and if it's not in your field, it's doubly hard, Know. And then even sometimes the experts themselves, if you just read the abstract, you'll get a misleading viewpoint because in the abstract, I'm kind of trying to sell the paper. 
<laughs> and not giving you everything. So that all makes it, that has that, the experts themselves are not reliable part. So like, I don't want that to be but my headline, don't trust the experts. But I do want to say the experts themselves, I think, need to make sure they're reliable, not just selling what they have to say. A part of the, 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 the rational accident um, thesis is uh, about understandings of risks, like in a proper, proper assessments of risk. And we've got a, an issue in tech in that we're, we're, we as humans are really good at developing tech really quickly. Um, and we've got uh, a great desire to be implementing this tech and pushing it out there, and making changes, making the world a better place. But with anything new, we mightn't be particularly good at it. We mightn't understand what the, what the risks are. How can we deal with that? That's kind of that issue of like technology and not understanding the risks that, that comes with it. So this is a problem which goes back in time, of course, right? And we can see that with a nuclear bomb, right? And after the nuclear bombs were dropped, there were some physicists who were deeply regretful, saying, yep, I was just doing my science, and it's pure science, and whoa, <laughs> that's the nuclear bomb. I didn't know that would happen, uh, but it did. <laughs> uh, and now there's nothing that we can do about it. There's nothing that we can do about it. You know, now, even if they had known ahead of time, it, it'd be a little bit tricky because sooner or later, some physicists, all the physicists would understand it, and someone else would have the nuclear bomb. <laughs> you know, so it's not just the simple question. It's you know, there's not like the lone tech genius or the lone nuclear physicist, and all we have to do is time travel back and shoot that person, and we don't have that technology anymore. We do, you know, and it's it's going to come after. So. Uh, but that's an old issue, and, and you're right. Tech is like getting way ahead of us, you know. And we could say, oh, it's going to do this, it's going to do that. And it's not only that we don't understand the risk; it's like almost the risks of the risks, you know. And again, they're not linear; that they just they go too too fast. So those things are 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 very dangerous. The ones where by the time I understand it, it's too late. You know, by the time I understand that a car driving at 90 miles per hour is dangerous, it's not too late. Well, let's just, I mean, it's too late. Some people were killed. Well, let's make the speed limit 70 miles an hour. You know, that this design was dangerous. Let's fix that design, right? So there's some of those risks which, you know, they're dangerous, but they're kind of manageable. Let's, let's go there. And there are others where, oh, I didn't know the Internet would do that. Wow, you know, we we're, we're have a lot of trouble, but we're not designed to stop, you know, that kind of progress because there's the progress, there's the downside. Um, so I really wouldn't know what, what to do about that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, because there's, there's also the other danger of technology and us and human innovation being so, um, so powerful. Like, you know, we're really good at building stuff. Uh, we're really good at figuring stuff out. Is that people believe? Well, don't worry about it. We'll 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 figure it out. Like, just give us a few years, and you know, we understand there's a problem now. We've got lots of smart people working on working on the climate issue. We'll figure it out. That's, there's no need for us to do anything about it now, because we'll figure it out. Is that a major kind of danger for action? It seems counterintuitive because, like, you should have faith in humanity. You know, like, we're, 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 we've done great things. Well, you know, if we go back in time again, further back in time, right? We have Malthus warning about overpopulation and the world's get too big. You know, where the Earth's population was so much smaller. Uh, and then what the story will say, well, it's been anticipated technology. You know, so we have the technology has made incredible strides, you know, and we yeah, you know what, we eradicated smallpox, you know, so there are a lot, in that sense, if you say there is optimism, it's not like insane to think uh, that it can be fixed, uh, but on the other hand, it is insane to count on it. <laughs> fair point, fair point, yeah, so it's the, yeah, the, there's a, let's say there's a 30% chance of us finding something to fix that. Well, there's a 70% chance for you just picking numbers out of the air that we won't. <laughs> so. Yeah, and let me flip it. Even if there's a 70% chance that we will find somebody, there's a 30% chance, you know, even if I was going to be more optimistic, and a 30% chance we won't is huge. <laughs> sure. 
Thinking about the, the area of polarisation and um, how, how hearts and minds need to be won over a bit quicker than they are at the moment to try and get us to, to, to the point we want to be. Um, is there a kind of a message that you would give to kind of communicators on the you know, the climate climate transition to uh, any advice that you could give how, on how to break through that that well, polarization? I mean, if I'm going to base it on my work, not everything needs to be based on my work. Okay, <laughs> but uh, if we talk in terms of novel messages, and I mean, actually, you know what? I can go back centuries and to the French philosopher Pascal, you know, and he said, if if you want to convince somebody of something. Try looking at it from their point of view, and you might see it's kind of right from their point of view. <laughs> so first acknowledge that, and then give them the other point of view from which it's wrong. You know, and maybe that's a good starting point. And then Hammer said, "Well, yeah, I can see. You know, for instance, if I don't trust the scientists because I think they're all in left-wing institutions, whatever that might mean, I can see a point there. You know, why you might have some skepticism." I don't know, you know, at least that's your viewpoint. So now I've understood your viewpoint. But you should look here, as you said, how much the oil companies have to play. Actually, a lot of these scientists don't. Actually, I can show you the politics of, even if generally that's their politics, this isn't, because now there's like a consensus moving, you know. So uh, I think acknowledging to the extent you can. So I don't want to go whole hog and say, you know, on the one hand this, on the one hand that, everything has a point of view. Some things are just stupid and wrong. Okay? So I don't want to, I, I can't go that far. But on the other hand, first just try to see, try to see to what extent uh, that's true and see if that can help as well. You know, I mean, another issue is just, I'm, you know, there's two kinds of denying. One is I truly don't believe it's a problem. The other is I don't want to pay that cost. <laughs> you know, they're not the same. And even if I say I don't, I, I might say I don't want to pay the cost, but say I don't believe it because I actually it's just that I don't want to pay the cost. You know, so that requires uh, a different argument. Of course, it's easier to get you to believe it if it's if it all dovetailing. Okay, but also it's, I think it's important to look at to what extent. It's the costs and the technologies, you know, to what extent, uh, you know, if I, I don't know, subsidize renewables for people who's, who are in oil, will that shift the things they do as well? Uh, are you optimistic? Let's say I'm uh, hopeful rather than optimistic. <laughs> Normally ask kind of one question I did to everybody, which is why should people care about what you what you care about, what, what you're passionate about. I suppose that the most appropriate question for you wouldn't be in academia. It'd be more like, why should people be passionate about, be interested in game theory or, or in, in, in microeconomics? Well, I think it's because I want to look at the, the phenomena, the surface phenomena, you know, and and understand that if I just see people acting in a certain way, and then I might conclude, oh, you've done X, that means you want Y, because that seems to be the consequence, immediate consequence, you know, that it doesn't necessarily mean that, okay? I have to understand the the interactions of, what, of, of what's going on, you know? And I could look, and you might say, this is the consequence of what we all did. In a sense, that's the rational accidents, you know? And I say, oh, I guess that means you don't really care if there's an accident. You know, and I go, no, it doesn't mean I don't really care if there's an accident. I do. In fact, I care so much that instead of reading the memo, I was out back doing something else, which was twice as important. You know, and then you say, well, how can that make sense? Because if no one reads the memo, okay, so now the game theory is going to put it all together. You know, and then I'm going to understand because you know what, we have to have better results. So we need to all get together in the company and, and chant safety first, safety first, safety first. You know, well, is that going to work? You know, is that the problem or is that not the problem? Well, you know, maybe that has an impact. I don't want to say it has no impact, but I need to understand the game theory as well. Well, brilliant. I think that's a very nice way to end it. So thank you so much for your time. Really, yeah, had a great thank conversation. You. Thank Pleasure. you. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us on that conversation. We hope that you enjoyed it. We hope that you uh, learned something. Uh, if you did enjoy it, please feel free to leave a five-star review. 
and to subscribe to any of our channels and we'll be sure to keep you updated on future productions. This series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. These are conversations that you just can't afford to miss.